and welcome to an all new episode of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Wiltagen, and despite the season slowly winding down with the relegation playoffs, we're still here to bring you a lot of Bundesliga related content. Now that the season is coming to an end, it is actually a great time to dive right into the history books. And uh, as it turns out, famed German football writer Uli Hesse has just published a book about Franz Beckenbauer called The Three Lives of der Kaiser. After the break, you'll hear an entire interview with Uli Hesse about his new book. So all of that is to come. Joining me now is the German football historian Uli Hesse, who's written a new book about Franz Beckenbauer. Uli, great to have you back on, and uh, how happy are you about the fact that your book just dropped? Hi, Nick. First of all, it's been a while. Yes, it has. I haven't been on the show in, in yeah in quite some time. Yeah, I'm very happy because it was it was it was a lot of work. I think it's it's the first book I've done while I've been working full time for El Freunde magazine in Berlin. So, um, you know. Before I was a freelancer, and it's <laughs> it's quite different <laughs> writing a book when you're a freelancer. So I, I learned it the hard way. Yeah, because I mean, there's so many interviews with various people of Matt Beckenbauer along the way, so it must have been hard to track all of them down. But I think one obvious question that I ask myself when you write an auto, not an autobiography, but a biography rather, I mean, there are many autobiographies about Franz Beckenbauer, or those <laughs> that claim they are. <laughs> But if you cannot yeah. talk to the person himself, you know, how do you start, you know, looking into other people and who, you know, can give an accurate account of what has actually happened during various phases of his life? Yeah. So first of all, I've never done a biography of this kind before. So I've, I've written a couple of books, of course, and I've done a biography. I've been a ghostwriter with a fairly famous German radio commentator. Back then I did what you, what you do, you know, you, you sit down with a person and you talk about his life. And then you try to make sense of it and put it into a form. And, you know, so this was very different. And, you know, the, the idea was never, never along was the idea to, to actually work together with Franz Beckenbauer for various reasons. One is that, you know, the most dreaded thing is the authorized biography, mm. uh, which, which basically means you're, I don't know, you have to run everything by somebody else or by his agent or whatever. And what turns out is, is not really what you wanted to write. And, and the other thing, of course, is that this man has talked so much about his life and there's been so much written about him, you know, so the idea is, so you, you just mentioned the interviews I did. Yes, it was a bit difficult to track down, you know, people who grew up with him, but the, the really daunting task was just the staggering amount of material that has been written about him mm. and supposedly by him, you know, it, it's really, really, really amazing. I mean... I mean, I'm a professional journalist. I've never come across anything like it. You know, I've got access to, to to newspaper databases so I can, you know, just put in a name and and see what the database throws out. And it's just it's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, you know, closing on 80. He's been the national team coach. He's played for Bayern Munich. He's had various roles within German football and has been a tabloid figure since, you know, the 60s. So, yes, I, I think... There's plenty of material. Um, it's, it's, also, it's also, I briefly mentioned this in the book, that at one point in his life, he had a choice between, you know, not cooperating with, with the media, you know, just being his own man and just, you know, 
or just, you know, throwing himself to the wolves. And he chose the second. So, so he was always a tabloid media darling. He was a tabloid columnist. He invited all these people into his homes. They were his friends. They talked to him and everything, you know. And that, that's also, of course, that's another reason why, you know, everybody had tons of material to say about him or opinions and whatever. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I did learn a, a little bit more about uh, in your book was actually his upbringing. And, and you mentioned that was maybe a little bit difficult to find people who've been around him at that time. Um, can you give us a couple of nuggets about what surprised you when you took a look at that stage of his life? What surprised me was that he comes from that, you know, just post-war generation. I mean, the people were just born at the end of the war. And uh, this generation produced so many heroes in the 60s. You know, all those rock musicians were born just around that time that, that Beckenbauer was born. And of course, he has various contemporaries on the football pitch, you know, um, you know, the Pelé and Cruyff and George Best and all these people. And they share many character traits or backgrounds. You know, they all come from very fairly simple working class families. What kind of surprised me about Beckenbauer was that uh, he was very much his own man from, you know, from being a child. And there's some very interesting things about him, you know, about how even as a very young boy, you know, he didn't seem to have much regard, you know, for public opinion or for morals or for mores or for, you know, what society expected of you, you know, which is sort of unusual. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> plenty of stories that, you know, back in those days would have been a crisis like him fathering a child at a very young age and out of wedlock at the time. And refusing to marry the mother, you know. In, in um, you know, a, a fairly conservative Germany and an even more conservative state. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that is quite a decision to make. And, yeah, and talking but, about sorry for interrupting you, but and this is kind of the interesting thing. It, it, there, there was no, no, no kind of rebellious stance behind him, you know. It was not... I mean, the brother was actually the rebel of the family, you know, if anything. He just did his own thing, you know. He just fathered a child and said, no, actually, I don't want to marry. It was not in his intention you know, to, to bring down the Catholic Church or whatever. Uh, so there was, um, it, it's never really been, he's never been a rebel, of course, you know. But he's always been his own man. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. It is. I mean, one of the stories, and I'm actually glad that you talk in some detail about it in the book, is it's the fact that it, it's sort of that urban legend that has been told. And when you Google it, you'll find it in Spanish, English, Norwegian, Japanese. That famous slap. <laughs> by yeah, I suppose I myself, I'm not, you know, really innocent in this regard. Yes, that, that, that yeah. famous slap. I mean, it's been told over and over and over again that Beckenbauer was slapped by an 1860 Munich youth player, and that's why he decided to actually join Bayern. Yeah. And then the many what-if articles, that useful speculation at best. But can, can you actually shed some light on that incident and that tale? Is it sort of an urban legend that has spun out of all proportions, or is there actually some truth to it? Well, I mean, there must be some truth to it. But, you know, after all those years, I think there's a lot less truth to it. Than you know, than I myself thought, you know, I, I, I probably I'm just as guilty as anybody because you know, I repeated the story in tour and then also in the Bayern book because it is a very good story, <laughs> and also because Beckenbauer himself told it, so it must be true, you know. That, that's that's what I thought, <laughs> uh, and then actually a couple of 1816 players came forward and said, yes, it's true, I did it. <laughs> and it's only later that you think, come on. Why is there a new culprit every five years? You know, um, and, and then again, you, you, you also, 
the longer you think about Franz Beckenbauer and read about him, and actually, you know, in a funny way, this is one of the things that everybody in Germany just sort of liked about the guy in his later years, you know, that you always, you just knew that everything he said had to be taken with a grain of salt, you know? He was making all these flippant remarks and not, not really thinking about it because, you know, he, he was the Kaiser, you know? He could say whatever he wanted to say and everybody sort of knew it, that it was always half-joking. So, and then just like years and years later, you think, hey, maybe he was already like that, you know, uh, 40 years ago when he started telling all these tall tales about how he was slapped in the face and decided to not join 1860. So anyway, I went to an exhibition at the, um, at the Bayern Munich Museum. That was on the occasion of his 75th birthday, which was a very low-key affair because of, you know, COVID and everything. And I talked to one of the guys who curated the exhibition, and he expressed actually very severe doubts <laughs> about this old slap in the face story. <laughs> uh, he said, because we've since found out that there were, you know, some family links between France and the Bayern youth setup. And he sort of, well, without actually saying it, he was sort of suggesting that Beckenbauer was, might have been actually looking for a way out of it, you know, just for it for some excuse to join Bayern Munich, you know, and, and he found it at this youth tournament, whatever happened or didn't happen there. <laughs> well, he joined Bayern, but, you know, around that same time when he was at the beginning of his playing career, the Bundesliga was actually found, you know, a little while before he started playing as a Bayern player. Now, Bayern were not included in the Bundesliga from the get-go in 1963, would you believe it? So when the Kaiser first joined the Bavarian outfit, they actually played in the Bundesliga 2 for the first full season of him being a professional. I mean, how did Bayern even back then manage to form a team that would go on to so many great things a little bit later on? And how crucial was Beckenbauer to those developments back then? Yeah, I, th I think one of the great Beckenbauer myths, which has a lot of truth to it, is that it was probably a good thing for Bayern Munich that they were not chosen to play in the first Bundesliga season. I mean, we're probably going to hear a lot about this this summer because it's, it's another year, it's, it's, it's another jubilee, it's like 60 years. Looking back on the formation of the Bundesliga, right? It was not chosen on sporting merit. So it was not like it would play a season and like, you know, the first five teams from all those regional leagues go to the Bundesliga, you know? That's not what happened. So the German FA decided to sort of have a very arcane system on how the teams for the Bundesliga were selected, you know, based on past performance and all kinds of other things. And truth be told, Bayern were very, very disappointed to not be elected into the Bundesliga. And actually, they should have been, you know, but they had the sort of, well, they had the misfortune, which turned out to be a fortune of losing the title of Southern Germany to 1860 Munich, but just a couple of points. And the German FA then shortly before the Bundesliga came into being, they said, we do not want to have two teams from the same city in the first season, you know, and we cannot sort of cannot, you know, exclude the champions of Southern Germany, which was all fine and well, and makes sense. Only nobody had told the teams involved that this was sort of a criterion, you know, so Bayern were really incensed and saying, look, look we're just as good as 1860, you know, uh, we should be in the Bundesliga. So anyway, but the long and the short of it is that Bayern were just about to build this team, you know, with a lot of young players and, and Beckenbauer probably being the best among them. 
And there are a lot of football historians who say that if Bayern had been under, under pressure, you know, th- throwing that young team in the Bundesliga, they might have been forced to make a couple of changes, you know, bring in more experienced players or whatever. So, but since this did not happen, they could actually keep the team together and have it sort of develop in the second division. Yeah, and they had a very lenient coach in, in Czech. Yeah. Who sort of created an, uh, an oasis of well-being, as, as the famous German phrase uh, would go. Now, that oasis of well-being left with him, and then came the 70s with a lot of other characters entering that Bayern dressing room in Breitner, in Uli Hoeneß, and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Can you tell us a little bit about what the atmosphere was like within that dressing room and would it have won a prize for best working environment even back in the 70s? <laughs> no, it must have been. Uh, that was another, but two things I was really surprised about when researching the book. Not surprised about, you know, in, in terms of that it happened, but the extent to what it happened was that you mentioned Chick Tchaikovsky and Beckenbauer sort of, you know, Another interesting thing about him is, is that he developed this entire new role on the field of play, you know, sort of the libero position in the 60s. And he did this together with Tchaikovsky. And what I didn't quite realize was, was the amount of criticism he got for that, you know, that people felt he was a better striker and offensive midfield player than a central defensive player. And the other thing was that I had a vague idea of this because, well, because I sort of grew up through the 70s. I was very young, but I can still remember it. Is the intense bickering, you know, and infighting in that Bayern Munich team in the 70s, you know, it must have been absolutely awful. And looking back now as a professional journalist and reading all these articles, it's just amazing what these people tell about each other, you know, the names they give each other and how openly they attack each other in the press, you know. In the public newspapers, it's it, it actually, it must have been a different world back then, you know. That's really astonishing. I mean, I'm saying this just a couple of days, you know, after Bayern Munich fired their two leading executives, actually minutes after winning the league title, <laughs> which is one of the things everybody's talking about now in Germany. And having done all this work on the book, you think, that's, that actually, that's, just a normal working day at Bayern Munich in the 70s, you know, <laughs> it was really, and I'm not exaggerating, you know, this was a club that, you know, Franz Beckenbauer had to pay hundreds of thousands of marks out of his own pocket to actually leave the club, uh, you know, Gerd Müller was sent away, he wasn't even giving a bouquet of flowers, you know, it must have been a very, very cold atmosphere, a very hostile atmosphere at Bayern in the 70s, which is, of course, a totally different story. But it is one of the reasons why Uli Hoeneß is such a major figure at Bayern Munich, you know, because a lot of people are convinced that it was him who sort of turned the club policy around, you know, who did things differently, you know, when he became the key figure at Bayern Munich, you know, taking care of former players and everything and things like that. But during the 70s, it must have been, it was really um, lots of warring factions at the club. And it must have been, um, you can actually understand why Beckenbauer ran away to the cosmos. Yes, you would want to put as much distance as possible between yourself and that bickering bunch. But as he was part of that bickering bunch for the better part of over a decade, how much power did he actually yield within Bayern Munich at the time? Yeah, I mean... I'm hesitating because he must have had a lot of power 
I mean, he was the one who brought in Udalatic as coach, you know. He basically decided that this is going to be our new coach. I think he later regretted it. But anyway, that's what he did. And there was even there was even a famous instance of Gerd Müller, you know, another, you know, unbelievable key player in Bayern Munich's history, who sort of, even though he was a big fan of Beckenbauer's, you know, at one point toyed with the idea of leaving for Barcelona because he said, you know, at Bayern Munich, I'm, I'm just the guy who scores every goal, but I will be always in the shadow, you know, of those guys, of those Beckenbauer's and Hoeneß's and Brightness and everybody. So he must have had a lot of power. But one of the stories of his life is always that he never wanted to seek this power, you know? I mean, pretty much in contrast to his, um, at the time, you know, in the 70s, arch enemies, Hoeneß and Breitner, who were both very ambitious people, you know? who, who Goal-oriented. Yes, and they actively seeked power, you know? And Beckenbauer just, at least that, that's the impression you have from, you know, from how he lived his life, that he never outwardly, that's not what he wanted from life, you know? He wanted to play football, but it was not ideal to, you know, to become a powerful person. But he just happened to be so good that this was a byproduct. And he sometimes didn't quite know how to handle that, how to, you know, how to, how to actually yield his power. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, we were talking about the constant infighting and the bickering and the name calling and, you know, players wanting to leave and the atmosphere just basically... I mean, the only reason why Bayern survived, basically, is that they won a lot of titles during the first half of the 70s and then went on to actually go on a run in the European Cup. But at the same time, a lot of these players were also playing in the national team together. Now, Beckenbauer's role in the national team under Helmut Schoen, that's a bit interesting because Helmut Schoen wasn't all that keen on having, you know, a guy back in defense, right? Yeah, I just mentioned it a couple of minutes ago. That What I didn't quite realize was that how, I mean... Beckenbauer became the central, the key central defender. I mean, the, the same guy at Bayern Munich at the exhibition who told me about, you know, his theory about the slap in the face or the not slap in the face. He said that it, that it was only recently that he realized that Bayern actually never had a playmaker in the 70s, you know, the way other teams had, uh, you know, the classic number 10 player. And that was probably because they had Beckenbauer, you know. It was actually, funnily enough, that he's central defensive player, you know. But he was also, of course, the point of his interpretation of the libero, the sweeper role, was that he would move forward all the time, you know. So he just couldn't have a, I don't know, a Maradona-type player playing in front of him, you know. That would have never worked. So his kind of role was very early on accepted at Bayern Munich. So, you know, everybody agreed that, that this is how Beckenbauer should play and that would be for the best of the team. But it took him a long time to do the same for the national team, mainly because people were, you know, were just wondering why a young player like him, a very, very good offensive player, you know, would want to play at the back. You know, he was accused of, you know, retiring early, you know, from active duty, so to speak, you know, of, of being lazy, actually. And, and, and in the case of Helmut Schoen, I think it was also that at one point he mentioned that he always dreamed Schoen was a bit of a romantic, you know, so he dreamed of a very, very cult German midfield, you know, with Beckenbauer in midfield and having Overard playing next to him on the Netzer maybe, you know. So I think Schoen and Beckenbauer had sort of a bit of a, well, not difficult relationship because they liked each other as people, but they had a bit of a difficult professional relationship because I think Schoen hoped that 
Beckbauer would be something else in the national team, a different kind of player, and Beckbauer didn't want that to be. And so they sort of that was always a bit of a bone of contention between them. It was indeed. Well, I mean, the, the results speak for themselves, though. I mean, he won the European Championship before it actually became the Euros. A quite different setup back then in 1972 and World Cup in 1974. But he didn't compete in the World Cup of 78. And why that was, we'll tell you in part two. As we've seen earlier, things weren't necessarily always as rosy as they appeared to be for the Kaiser. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, actually, is his media personality. I mean, we, you mentioned it a little bit, though, but can you expand a little bit on how he was portrayed in the German press and maybe tell our listeners a little bit about some of the funny byproducts that yielded? Well, I mean, one of, one of the reasons that led to, um, I mean, oh, let me put it this way. The book is called The Three Lives of the Kaiser. Because what I found fascinating about Beckenbauer is that there were these different stages in his life where, I mean, we've just talked about the time when he was really an totally outstanding footballer in the 60s and 70s. And, and, but kind of perplexingly during that time, he, he wasn't universally loved in Germany by the fans for various reasons, you know, because he was a Bayern player. He was a Bavarian, which is another key aspect of the book. Because of his style of football, which is very un-German, you know, and also because uh, he was he was this huge media figure, you know, he was he was just everywhere, you know, he was really really one of the key German celebrities in the seventies. Like I said at the beginning, the, just the, the amount of material you find about him is staggering. He was just everywhere, you know, on the silver screen, the television, newspapers, everything, and this gradually became a problem for him, you know. Because we've also talked about the fact that he was very much always his own man, his own person, even though we had this sort of Svengali figure, you know, in Robert Schwann, his personal advisor and agent and manager. So Beckenbauer did a couple of things that weren't quite expected of him, you know, especially in his love life. And so there came the point in the 70s, I think, when just this media pressure just became too much. I mean, there were very many reasons why he left for America there were sporting reasons, there were financial reasons, there were legal reasons. But it was also, I think, that he was just trying to get away from, you know, this intense media glare, and, which must have been really in incredible. You mentioned Robert Schwan there. How important was he to Franz Beckenbauer's lives all these years? And there is. And I only noticed this when I had a look at the final draft of the book, when they sent me, the, you know, the photo plates. And when I had a look at the photos... There is a photo where Franz Beckenbauer says goodbye to his parents just before he leaves for America. And the next photo they gave me was Franz Beckenbauer in America with Robert Schwan. And it was only when I looked at those two photos that I realized that his agent looks exactly like his father. And I don't think it's, it's much of a coincidence. It was really... I mean, we have one really good book about Beckenbauer in Germany, just one really, because all the others were just written by, you know, hacks and ghostwriters. And uh, Torsten Körner, and he makes the point that he says that one of the key elements of Beckenbauer's entire life has been the search for a father figure uh, or father figures. And, and his agent, Robert Schwann, was certainly one of them. Uh, he was definitely a surrogate father for him. 
because his father, I mean, Franz Beckenbauer's father was, ab was absent, not in the sense that he was dead or away, but he had some physical problems and he was never really a big football fan. And uh, he, he wasn't really there during Franz's formative years when he would have needed a father figure. So um, that's why a lot of people make that point and, and rightfully so, I think. Mm. Well said, Robert Schwann. He actually started negotiating that move to the cosmos in 1977, 18 months before it actually happened, supposedly. Now, how did that move across the pond shape Franz Beckenbauer as a person? And what sort of experience did he take away with him from that time? This is, I mean, it, it's really probably the key event of his life, really. Also not for him personally, but also for how, how Germans perceive him. I'm old enough to actually remember that. I was very young when he left, but I sort of remember that when all the furor and, and, and you know, it was... He was not a young player anymore, of course, but Helmut Schoen, the national coach, he wanted to have Beckenbauer in the national team for the 1978 World Cup. So it was, it was kind of a shock to everybody that Beckenbauer would leave Germany for what was called a Mickey Mouse League at the time, you know, an Operettenliga, you know, an, an opera, you know, just showbiz league. Nobody took a league no, and nobody took seriously, even though Pelé was playing there. It's an, and it was perceived at the time as, you know, the, as a sort of a, a defection, you know, of the Kaiser, <laughs> an abduction or whatever. Um, but funnily enough, bizarrely, or yeah, funnily enough, it, it turned out to be the key moment or the, or the key, key phase of Beckenbauer's life. Because he came back a changed man. And when he came back, the nation looked at him differently. You know, we, we suddenly found out that we'd actually missed him. And then, you know, you, you can really de divide his life into, you know, pre-cosmos and post-cosmos. And uh, I don't think it's an, an accident that it's the best chapter in the book. <laughs> it's uh, because it's just very interesting, very funny. And uh, just just the whole idea of this. Um, I mean, the, lots of books and films have been made about the NASL and the cosmos, you know, and it must have been mind boggling, you know, just everything we've heard about that league and that club. And then what sometimes people fail to mention is that what I found out in my interviews is that you also have to remember that this is a league, a fairly new league, full of teams. And of course, they bring in all these star players from Europe, you know, all these giants like George Best and Beckenbauer and Pelé and Carlos Alberto, what they've got. But these guys are playing alongside, you know, normal guys, you know, just second or third stringers from the UK, young American players. And everybody's getting along. Everybody's on the same team. And uh, it's really this really very interesting phase. And I think a, a, a very good book could be written about just about those few years alone in New York. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like there are loads and loads of stories from that time. But yes, as, as you, <laughs> it struck me very, you know, the moment I started reading about, you know, the NASL phase, I was sort of like, hang on, the dressing room atmosphere at Bayern was very much quite the opposite to what Beckenbauer was suddenly uh, encountering in New York. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the stories that, that Werner Ross tells about, you know, the Cosmos captain, he was sort of half German. And his memory of Franz Beckenbauer is that of Beckenbauer as a court jester, you know. He would play jokes and tricks all the time on people. And if, if you would have told that a German in 1977, you know, that Beckenbauer is this immensely funny person, who loves to play practical jokes on everybody. 
everybody have gone, he must have been talking about the wrong guy, you know. <laughs> this is not the Beckenbauer we know, but he was like that in, in you know, in, in New York because there was no supervision. He was, you know, there were no German tabloids. There was no Robert Schwan, you know, his manager was absent most of the time. He was just almost a regular guy. I mean, you know, there was still Studio 54 and everything, and he was <laughs> you know, dancing with Mick Jagger. But, but apart from that, he was fairly normal. Apart from dancing with Mick Jagger, fairly ordinary guy. Well, it all came to an end when he uh, moved back to Germany and joined HSV. Let's just gloss over that time spent at HSV because it wasn't probably the happiest end to a career. That was really great. Yeah, mainly mainly because of injuries. He was, uh, you know, for the first time in his career, he was having a lot of injuries. He, he blamed that on, on playing on AstroTurf in the USA, you know, might have been right, yeah. Hmm. What is actually funny is that the guy you mentioned who always changes his mind, who, you know, says one thing one day and next day he says something completely different. You know, he started talking about taking his coaching badges, then he didn't do it, then he turned into a columnist of the Bild Zeitung. But how, in the end, he ended up being German national team coach after all, or a team chef. Yeah. So he team chef the, the national team or whatever you may call it. So how did he end up in that? You know, he, he, he would find out that there was a rather steep learning curve to that job, right? Yeah. I mean, I probably he, if he was sitting now beside it, he would, he would, you know, just crack a joke and saying it just happened, you know, and I never planned it. And uh, something went wrong or whatever. Then there's a lot of investigative journalists who would probably tell you that Robert Schwan, his agent, you know, was masterminding this, that he was you know, scheming in the background and trying to get him becoming the national manager. Personally, I think it was, he was just, well, either at the wrong place at the wrong time or at the right place at the wrong time. <laughs> it's difficult to say because he was available. I mean, as you know, in whatever capacity, he was available then when Germany just needed somebody new to run the, run the national team because I'm not, I'm not sure how, how much people outside of Germany or how... how younger generations, how much do they know about this? But the mood about the German national team was very, very bad in the early 80s. I mean, people normally look at, you know, just the stats and say, you know, they were European champions in 1980, they were in the World Cup final in 1982. It can't have been that bad, you know? But it was, it felt really bad for whatever reason. I mean... Jupp Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was also... I know people who disagree with me. My, I know people my age who disagree with me but I was 16. I just didn't like the team. I couldn't stand this team. You know, they, f they felt arrogant. And, you know, I just, anyway, it, it can't have been just me because there was this general feeling that, that something needed to change, you know, and there was nobody really available who could have, who could have done that. You know, even the one, even the person that they approached in the early 80s to replace Uppdeaval, Helmut Benthaus, who was then the coach at VfB Stuttgart. Of course, he would have been a good national coach, but he wasn't that he was not a very colorful figure, you know. He wouldn't have been able to just turn things around in, you know, in terms of public imagination. He would have never grabbed the public imagination the way Beckenbauer would have done. But he was there, he was the way, but he just, you know, stopped his playing career. So he was, you know, the, the obvious choice in a way. I think the only person who didn't see it as an obvious choice was Beckenbauer himself. He needed some convincing. Well, once that obvious choice was made after, you know, loads of red wine or maybe phone call to Robert Schwan, who knows, 
Beckenbauer then, you know, went to his first big tournament and he found out that these guys who you describe as, you know, fairly arrogant and maybe even slightly dislikable as a bunch, he found out that they were quite a difficult bunch to manage in terms of the behavioral challenges that they had at the time. Yeah, of course, it was also Beckenbauer himself, you know, who probably didn't quite know how to deal with the players and the press at the same time. And yeah, so his first couple of years on the job as a national coach, you know, he had a different title, but he was the national coach. Work quite difficult. Yes, you were right. Well, basically also because the team wasn't very good. He didn't have much talent at his disposal. And I, I don't even know if this is in the book. I think it is. But there's this famous story about um, after Germany made the World Cup final in, in, in 1986 and lost the World Cup final. And there was Beckenbauer was, was interviewed by a Spiegel reporter. And the Spiegel reporter later described how Beckenbauer was sitting on his hotel bed and recounting the World Cup, you know. And then suddenly he burst into laughter. And then when he was finished laughing, the Spiegel reporter said, uh, what was that about? And Beckenbauer said, I just, you know, I just recalled all the names and the games. And can you believe that we played a World Cup final with these players? You know, this is amazing. So, yeah. So that was another row, you know, not just his having to learn on your job, how to deal with the players and the press. And it was also that there was the dearth of talent. And so the first years were, were, were yeah, were rather very difficult, quite, quite difficult. It's also because another thing in the book is about um, what I found quite interesting is that um, he was a good friend of Johan Cruyff. And of course, he's always compared to Johan Cruyff, you know, from 74 when they played in the World Cup final to, you know, they were... They didn't have many equals, you know, during the playing days. That Pele may be best, but that's all about it. That's all about it. And there were so many parallels in their career, you know, when they stopped playing, how they became national coaches and so on. But Cruyff was always manager material. You know, Cruyff was always the guy who thought about football, who had ideas about football, who had philosophies or, you know. And Beckenbauer never had any of that. You know, he wasn't, I don't, I don't think anybody would have described him as manager material, you know. Um, but still, he is the one. His line was always, your one was the better player, but I won the World Cup. And he meant as a player. But he was also the one who won the World Cup as a coach. Even though, you know, maybe Johan should have done it, you know. Uh, um, but, well. Well, uh, Johan should have done it once, in one way or another. Yeah. Probably most people think. Well, you mentioned that 1990 World Cup win. That once again changed the public image of Beckenbauer because, you know, he was, as you described in your book, he faced a lot of harsh criticism as a national team coach and then he went on to win the World Cup. There was one special moment that uh, you describe ever so well in the book that even perpetuated that change of public image of the Kaiser as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that this moment changed the public perception. Because that had gradually changed over the years, you know. Mm. He had become a lot more popular than he was ever as a player, as a national coach. And then, but it's sort of, that's the most, most Germans remember of him, of that 1990 World Cup. It's not actually the team winning it, but the image of Beckenbauer walking slowly across the pitch in the dark after the game. While, you know, while the, the team was parading the trophy around the pitch. And, and normally the cameras should have been on the team. And he wasn't even with the team. But, you know, the German TV director, he noticed Beckenbauer and he decided to cut 
away from the team to Beckenbauer in the dark, slowly on the pitch. And, and that was just a very private moment, very intense moment. And I think, yeah, that, that's basically when the nation became enamored with Beckenbauer. From him, very mixed feelings about him. That was sort of the moment when he really became a German football icon. Indeed. We're starting to run out of time here, so let's just gloss over what happened at Olympic Marseille, even though there was quite a lot. You can buy the book and read it there. And, you know, the fact that Beckenbauer coached Bayern twice as an interim and won actually a lot of silverware, given that he was for a very short time at the club. But we actually have a Patreon episode about that on our uh, on Patreon, uh, come to think of it, if you want to dive closer into that. But anyways, one fact that I do want to mention and I do think is significant is the fact that Beckenbauer joined Bayern as the president of the club in, uh, I think, 1994, position which he held until 2009. So... How did Beckenbauer shape the club during those years? Or did he shape it at all, given that he was working alongside a character as strong and big as Uli Hoeneß? And Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. And Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, not to forget. Yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was another very interesting thing, because both Beckenbauer and Rummenigge came in sort of at a time when Bayern were having severe problems. And it, and it almost looked as if Uli Hoeneß would lose control of the club. And I think he sort of worked on the principle that if you can't beat them, then make them join you or join them. Because there was a time in the early 90s when um, Bayern were in problems and it looked as if Hoeneß would be edged towards the sidelines. Then he, he sort of got out of that power struggle by inviting Beckenbauer and Rummenigge onto the board of directors, which in a way, which started a very successful period for Bayern Munich, of course, but also probably one of the most tumultuous periods in Bayern's history. You know, that was when they became FC Hollywood because you, you never suddenly had, you know, not just three superstars at the helm of the club, you know, but also two of those three superstars and prominent among them, of course, Beckenbauer were, were tabloid columnists. <laughs> and uh, so um, the fact that Beckenbauer, yeah, he did, I think he did shape the club in a way because one of the things that, people criticized Uli Hoeneß for it in the early 90s, was the fact that Bayern were making a lot of money, but that he was not spending the money, you know, in the way a lot of people thought they should be spending it. And both Rummenigge and especially Beckenbauer, you know, Rummenigge from his past as, as a player with Inter Milan at the Serie A, and Rummenigge quite fresh from his experience with Bernard Tapie at Olympique Marseille. They sort of had the experience that, it helps if you throw a lot of money around, you know, it would bring you success. You may lose a lot of money, but you will win silverware. So that, that's sort of when Bayern started to become really more active on the transfer market. And there's also people who say that, you know, the building of the modern ground was also one of the Beckenbauer's ideas. But um, in a way, he shaped the 90s and this FC Hollywood thing, you know, which was very entertaining. So all credit <laughs> to him was very entertaining indeed well i mean we have to mention one more thing and, and that's the fact that besides being the president of bayern he actually was the vice president of the dfb uh, i had forgotten about that actually he had to even negate the shaky waters of international football politics yeah. as he somehow ended up becoming the face of germany's successful bid to become the host nation for the world cup in 2006 now he, you know, at, at that point, everybody thought that, you know, everything comes naturally to Der Kaiser. Uh, he's just the luckiest bloke on earth. 
paired with a lot of talent. But how did you swing that one? Yeah, I mean, that's what the book is called, The Three Lives of the Kaiser, because there's also the third life, you know. It was, as, as you rightfully say, when, when we had the 2006 World Cup in Germany, you know, he could have gotten any job, you know. They would have handed them the keys to every city, you know, and I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, um, if you remember 2006, the summer of 2006 in Germany, the weather was dreadful. It was very, very cold. It was rainy until the start of the tournament. And I swear, everybody said, well, that's just France, you know. You have him involved. No problem, you know. He'll, he'll even swing around the weather. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's really rare that you have a person who is both professionally so successful and so popular with the public. But he was at that point in 2006. But it was also, as we now know, the start of his downfall, which only became obvious over the years, you know, because we now know that the 2006 World Cup was, you know, that, well, the way Germany won the bid was highly suspicious. And of course, that Beckenbauer, well, it, it depends to be seen. Actually, to be, to be honest with you, Nick, I thought, I thought he would become much more criticized or much more of a focal figure during this World Cup in Qatar than he actually became. Because let's not forget, he was he was one of the members of this infamous FIFA executive board, you know, who awarded those two World Cups to Russia and Qatar. And almost everybody on this executive board, you know, is 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 dead or in jail or, you know, has been stripped of all titles or whatever. So his, his role there is very, very, very dubious. But that's one of the that's one of the fascinating things about this person. So he had this life where he was seen very critically by the public for various reasons, while he was at the same time adored by, you know, professional journalists because he was a fantastic footballer. And then he had this part of his life where he was just adored by the press and the public. And now he has this phase of his life where he is seen very, very critical by the press, by the professional observers. Yeah, because of his very dubious roles in all these FIFA shenanigans. Well, the German public doesn't seem to care anymore. You know, <laughs> they, they just say basically, well, that, that's just France, you know. And I mean, it's, it's just France. You know, I would wonder what his children would say about that. And, you know, you write quite a bit about his relationship with uh, Stefan, the oldest son, who, um, yeah, uh, unfortunately is uh, deceased now. He uh, died because of a, was an inoperable brain tumor. I mean, that relationship actually was actually one of the most interesting relationships that you followed throughout the book. Yes, it's because another key aspect of his third life is that he, for so long, everything went really very easily for him, you know? Even, you know, even his divorces and then, you know, cheating on his wives with his girlfriend and on his girlfriend with somebody else's wife. It's, a, it's really funny because... Nobody has a bad word to say him about him, you know. He had this huge birthday party when all his former girlfriends and wives came together, <laughs> just as if they were just one big family. But now in his in his third life, there have been quite a few personal tragedies for him, including the death of his son. And it's not just, well, in, including the death of the one son who followed in his footsteps, you know. He has a lot of children by now and... But Stefan was the one who was 
perhaps the closest to him in terms of character or temperament. He was the one who wanted to be a footballer. Uh, he tried to be, he actually became a footballer. You know, people often think that Stefan Beckenbauer is sort of a bit of a failed figure because he didn't become a star like his father. But it's very, very difficult for the son of a famous player, you know, to follow in his father's footsteps. And he did become a Bundesliga player, you know. He did become a very respected youth football coach. So he had a good career. So in, in his early death was, was really, of course, was really hard on, on Beckenbauer. And uh, and was... Um, just one of those personal tragedies in the third part of his life or in his third life that they somehow seemed to be catching up with him suddenly. What I found interesting was that Stefan actually, you quoted an interviewer said, you know, me and my father, we don't really talk about feelings all that much. Yeah. Which, which you know, I, I mean, it sounded like Beckenbauer had sort of a distant father, both emotionally and in many other regards. And tragically in the, in the sense he turned out to be the same sort of father to Stefan. Yeah, which is which is a common story, of course. And it's also very common that Beckenbauer then married yet again and now has very young children. And for all we know, he's totally doting on them, on those young children, you know. And then um, he just, as if trying to make up for what, you know, he couldn't be or didn't want to be for his um, three older children. Which is, yeah, which is actually a fairly common story. You often hear these stories, you know, about how very successful people, you know, just have no time for their family. And then suddenly when they're older, they realize what they've missed out on. And um, I just hope he has enough years left, and you know, to really be a doting father for those younger kids. I hope so, too. Well, uh, all things considered, how do you think he's going to be remembered a few years from now? I mean, the fewer and fewer people who, um, you know, have actually, you know, followed his entire life from the 60s and onwards, and he, he's starting to get up there in age. Yeah. I mean, he will be remembered as our greatest player and a key football figure. I mean, he's now, he's really gone out of the public eye, which is which is one of the most astonishing things, because he's always been the most public of Germans, uh, really. There was nobody else, you know, no actor, no politician. Yeah, not not even a politician who was on television so often as Beckenbauer, who gave so many interviews, you know. And now suddenly it's all but vanished, you know. So that as, as harsh as it may sound, I think people are already preparing for, you know, because his health is also, it's also failing. I think we all know that, you know, he is now really our premier football figure. And that, that's how we, he will be remembered, just, you know, FIFA scandals or not. Well, I would agree. Well, this is it for another edition of Talking Foosball Extra. I hope you enjoyed it. Uli, always a pleasure and delight to have you on our show. Uh, please do tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you on social media and where they can find your work. Oh, Nick, I'm not very good at social media. <laughs> when are you getting onto Twitter? Tell me. <laughs> no, I'm in Twitter. Or TikTok? Are you um, <laughs> I mean, you, you've heard my incoherent ramblings right now. I mean, how, how do I get this into... How many characters is it on Twitter? You can get Twitter oh, blue and type as long <laughs> as you like. Well, I mean, it used to be 140, now it's 280. Well, there's TikTok, there's Instagram. There's a lot of social media, Oli. Yeah, I, I'm on Facebook. It's, it's the old man's <laughs> social media. Great. Uh, well, this episode has been produced by Aiden Rantoul. My name is Nick Viltag, and I'll be back next week telling you a little bit more about the relegation playoffs. Until then, it is goodbye for now. <laughs>